Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Here has been a, a really great session yesterday and this morning as well, hearing words from very inspiring uh, talks. And you're going to hear more of the same this morning. So we've stolen the Q&A format and we've dropped it here on the stage at Mooney Valley, which I think is only appropriate because the ABC is about to be privatised. Everything will be outsourced. And so Mooney Valley Racecourse can pick up the um, franchise for Q&A, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Do something pretty charming with that. Be be fun if, you know, Singo and Gay Waterhouse turned up regularly on the panel, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'd pay money to see that. Um, so our discussion this morning uh, feeds right into the theme of the conference uh, this year. I'm all right, Jack, reclaiming community in a selfish world. And speaking to you this morning, some eminent people starting from this side of the panel, which is your right, my left, con carapana iodidas, correct? That's all right. <laughs> He's the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, proudly Greek, and grew up in a working class family in a small country town in Victoria, which is crucial to who he is. Fiona Collis with you this morning as well. Fiona is a director of Ipsos Social Research Institute and a member of the Mind and Mood Report Team, which is one of the, the, the key bits of social analysis that comes out on a regular basis and always uh, eagerly anticipated. David Marr, of course, one of Australia's preeminent journalists, now writing for Guardian Australia. I tell you, he'll go anywhere. <laughs> and Clementine Ford, a social media addict with a strong background in feminist and social commentary who is on the clock because her sister is in labour right now and she's got to make a plane back to where the delivery is taking place. Good luck, Clementine, with that. <laughs> All right, now in Q&A style we have some pre-presented questions and I'm going to call out the names of people who said they'd be brave enough to stand up and ask the question, so I'm assuming that's the case. If there's absolute silence, I might read it out on your behalf, but there are three microphones in the room, correct? Can I see where they are? Here we go, one, two and three. Um, if you keep your, put your hand up, you want to ask a question at any point, I'm happy to take it. Leave your hand up until I spot you and then when I call for you, wait till the mic to get to, uh, come to you and we'll get that going. But look, let's kick it off this, uh, this morning with Margaret Osmond of Cairns has asked a question about resilience. Margaret, are you somewhere around? Can I see you? Yes, at the back. At the back. Margaret, go for it. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um, we know that individuals can be both um, vulnerable and resilient at the same time. So the question from the panel is, um, do you think that communities can be both um, vulnerable and resilient? I'll start with Con there. Yeah. Look, day to day at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, I see both continuums of that. You see people who have extraordinary vulnerability through torture, detention, trauma and destitution. But I've never seen such resilience as I see in refugees like people who have survived the most extraordinary atrocities and yet can still hold on to hope, still dream of freedom and still fight the good fight despite everything our government tries to do to extinguish that hope, the power of people is that it's something that can't be taken from them. So I'm inspired every single day by what refugees are able to hold on to and fight for. Fiona, this must come up in your research all the time. Yeah, look... Pull that just in front of you. Good on you. Um, I mean, one of the, the you know the themes of this uh, the theme of this conference conference is I'm all right, Jack. Yeah. And I think um, you know one of one of the issues that's going on at the moment is that people in Middle Australia is not feeling all right at the moment. Um, 
And, uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of, of, of insecurity, um, particularly around jobs. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the government. Um, and, uh, you know, and people are feeling very, very anxious. And, and you know, we've we found in our research that, that over time, then when this happens, there's a tendency for people to turn inward and to... Uh, you know, focus on their personal lives and, and uh, um, you know, attend to their immediate family and close circle of friends. Uh, and, you know, a, and uh, there's a, you know, a, 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 you know it, it's very easy to get the impression that, that uh, you know, that, that our societies are becoming tougher and less compassionate. Um, but that's only part of the picture and I think there's a, there's a lot of kind of strength in amongst it, but the, the focus is, is, is more, more inward. Just before we go to the other panel members, can I just dig a little further into that research? Are they telling you why they're not feeling all right at the moment? Uh, one of the big issues is, is job, uh, job security. You know, so you know, just about everyone has a personal experience of someone they know who has, uh, you know, is out of work. Yep. Um, um, you know, in the public service, uh, uh, you know, are dropping like flies. And when that happens, um, everyone starts to, to, to panic. And so, you know, so they start to worry about their own patch. David Ma, vulnerability and resilience at the same time. This rings a bell with me because a lot of the work that I've been doing lately is looking at the way in which bad politics... Um, Bad politics happens in this country because of a strong faith in the underlying resilience of the country. And there is a way in which, and I'm thinking, I suppose, particularly of the, of the politics of the boats, um, this is a terribly damaging kind of politics to pursue um, in any country. And it's pursued in this country um, because both sides of politics feel able to play the game because they so trust the underlying resilience of the democracy. What I fear, of course, is that that resilience can at a certain point snap. And this deliberate, the deliberate, um, the deliberate inflaming of racial fear as a day-to-day, -day, um, as a day-to-day -day strategy in the domestic politics of a democracy like Australia doesn't appear to be doing huge amounts of damage but, but reports um, like the Scanlon Social Cohesion Report that is, that is produced every year is showing every year that this kind of politics is eating into the resilience of, of the society, is becoming dangerously divisive. The signs are uh, rather hidden, of course, partly because there's not much interest in either side of politics um, revealing these, these danger signs. But we can take our resilience for granted and it can do us a great deal of harm unless we also at the same time remember how fragile um, decent democracies can be. Clementine? Well, I guess just continuing on the theme of refugees, I think that something that's always struck me is obviously a very vulnerable group of people have been incredibly resilient against the racism that they face for wanting to just secure safety for themselves and their families. And I don't have a background in working with refugees at all, but it's always struck me that um, it's, it's so hateful and willfully ignorant of all of humanity's desire to, to secure safety for themselves and for the people that they love that 
anyone in Australia who, particularly those who've been born here in, in relative privilege, wouldn't be able to empathise in some way about how they would behave if we were suddenly racked by civil war. If we were, you know, this idea of the queues and queue jumping and economic refugees and people who spend thousands and thousands of dollars to come here by boat, I defy anyone in Australia to not try everything that they could do to get themselves and their family out of a situation that was obviously physically threatening to them. Um, I also, def you know, you get these beat up stories about, well, you know, refugees come here and then they demand internet. Like, like if we suddenly had to all, you know, flee to New Zealand, we wouldn't be asking where our broadband was. Mm. You know, it's this idea that somehow we have done... I think that the majority of people who've been born in Australia have done absolutely nothing to deserve that privilege and yet they can't extend an empathy to people who have been born in completely different circumstances and who, who aren't trying to steal anything from anyone but are just genuinely trying to make the best for themselves and their families. And, and I know that there are a lot of people in Australia who are compassionate and, you know, as Con mentioned earlier in the green room, that, that on the one hand you have this extreme of people who are very resistant towards refugees and asylum seekers. And then on the other hand, you have this extreme of people who are, who are you know, desperate to volunteer and, and help. Yeah. And I guess when I think about resilience and vulnerability, I, I think about how they're resilient against everything it is we're throwing at them. Well, just going back to the thread of the question and putting this to everyone on the panel this morning, it seems um, that some communities who are in extreme stress and great vulnerability, it's actually at that time when we connect to them as a broader community and we can, we can show our best and their vulnerability can actually create the, or, or create to grow that connective tissue. I'm thinking just for one example, say, the communities affected by the Black Saturday bushfires and what happens there in terms of growing community connections. How does that strike you? Oh, I think that's very true. I mean, um, it is nothing like a, you know, a disaster to bring people together. Is it only a disaster that brings us together? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I suppose there are other examples of, um, you know, the, the, the just how quickly the... Uh, it, you know, the, the community rally was organised after the death of Julian uh, uh, Mark yeah. um, is another example. Mm. Look, I, for, for me, when you think about vulnerability, let's strip away for a moment our status, our wealth, our possessions, and go back to what vulnerability is, and that is you strip it all away and all we're really left with is the people in our lives that we connect to, is love, is intimacy, is... The, the sense of meaning we get from having a community around us. That's something all of us can relate to. And when you strip away the bullshit and you actually strip it down to just we are two human beings with an experience that we can relate to in terms of protecting our family or being safe or having love around us, that's something that draws people to one another. And when we strip beyond the politics that try to feed intolerance and fear and we're sitting across the table breaking bread together and we realise we're all the bloody same vulnerability binds us together because it strips back everything else and allows us to share and connect to our humanity. David? It's really simple. Um, disasters bring us together in a particular way um, and for a particular purpose. And um, I was privileged to be able to be a reporter in the aftermath of those fires and to see things that I've never seen in my life and to meet people in situations that I have never remotely come across um, before or since and be just filled with utter admiration for them. Um, 
and and that is a great thing for not just small communities but for but for but for nations but as a country we're rather impatient of communities that <laughs> don't get on pretty rapidly with the business of being unfragile and we have not much patience in this country for perpetually fragile communities mm. like aboriginal communities and remote remote outstations and the broken communities um, the broken communities of australia that's a different thing and that's i think somewhere where we need to explore um, the compassion and the patience that we can bring to bear on the intractably difficult situations of some communities. I've got a question here from Jennifer Ebden Hope in Victoria. Jennifer Ebden Hope, is there a. We've got. Okay, excellent, thank you. Thanks, Virginia. Um, in my work, I come across various examples of local and international programs where business and industry engage and invest in their local schools. This appears to be much more of a cultural norm in other countries and I'm interested in how might we in Australia promote a culture of collective responsibility for education within our business sector so that we can broaden the range of experiences that we can give our students. Uh, Clementine, can I start with you on that one? Do you have a, a response? I don't know if I have an answer for how we can encourage business to do it but um, it has always confused me as to how we can encourage the growth of society and we can encourage women to have children particularly I suppose you know um, if I can talk about like fiercely anti reproductive health choice uh, you know advocacy groups you know people who protest outside abortion clinics who expect women to have babies and then when they're born don't want to do anything to support them or help them and you know the fierce vitriol that's directed towards single mothers and women who want to have children but expect everyone else to support them for doing it and you, it's your choice to have a child so you should pay for it. Um, I don't understand how, like at what point we lost the idea of a community and a village raising children but you know did it happen when we all started living in boxes surrounded by fences with 2.4 children and that was that was our sole responsibility. Um, I'm as baffled as you are as to how we can fix that but I think that it's the sign of a productive and empathetic society that they would consider the future something worthwhile investing in. Fiona? Look, I think we see um, that investment uh, happening in higher education um, and we see lots of examples of that where businesses recognise that there is mutual gain. Um, mm. if they that's, get their, involved, that's their future workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And if they get involved, um, they get better graduates and they develop relationships which then uh, you know, benefit them in the long term and you know, everyone's a winner. Um, I don't know that we see it so much in, in secondary school, but you know, that may well change um, for, for the same the same reasons. It's about sort of encouraging business to see um, that this is their future workforce. Um, let's get in early. Um, uh, you know, if they're trying to encourage employment in, you know, areas of uh, where there are skill gaps, then that would be a very sensible strategy to get in at uh, late primary school and early secondary school to kind of encourage, uh, you know, the kids out there to consider, you know, a career in their particular industry. Con? Look, I, I think business is critical. You need an intersection between business, community and government. But when I'm talking to business, and you can apply this to any issue you're, you're championing at the moment. I said a business, you have an opportunity to capture the value of allowing refugees to contribute and rather than as a way of responding to policies that punish them. You can bring your knowledge, 
your networks, your expertise, your capital to strategically scale up solutions to social problems that we face. Except but they're not allowed to work, of course. Well, at the moment we have that challenge, but that will go. We'll win that fight. And saying to business, you need to go beyond corporate social responsibility. You need to start setting diversity targets. You need to start looking at the way in which you do business in a way that is environmentally sustainable in a way that doesn't create the next generation of refugees as well. So I say to business, they have a responsibility to drive this agenda, but you've, when talking to business, you've got to talk in a the language they get and go, here's your way of building your brand, holding your best people, separating yourself from the pack. It's good for you and it's good for society, but I think business is critical. And the, until we grasp the importance of that, and bring them to the table, we're never going to win the fights that we're trying to win. David Ma. Well, it's great if business is going to kick in extra and, and um, you know, help things out, but I'm a great believer in taxation. I'm a great believer in taxing businesses so that we have the money to pay for education. Yeah. We are living now in, in the um, bizarre aftermath of a, a last set of tax cuts that were um, proposed by the Howard government, instituted by, by the Rudd and Gillard governments, which have left this prosperous country poor. We, and all of this sort of browbeating about, you know, how are we going to get the money to do this? And how are we going to get the money to do that? We had the money and we gave it away. We just gave it away. What education requires is a proper, fair regime of taxation so that it can be properly paid for in the way it deserves to be paid for in a modern and ambitious democracy such as Australia. And bugger all of this holding, you know, fates and tea stalls around the suburban streets to pay for what, should ne what needs to be paid for, an investment in the future of this country. The alternative... The alternative philosophy, of course, and that's where the original tax cut idea came from, from the Howard government, and then, as you say, instituted by the Labor government, is that it's not giving the money away. It's, giving, it's allowing people to keep the money they earn, and they can then spend it where they want if they choose to go to this school or that school or that school. That's the prevailing philosophy. Well, that would be very, very impressive, except that the federal government is currently paying $6 billion a year to private schools. $6 billion a year. And under the Gonski proposals... One and a half billion dollars is to be stripped out of higher education, which is exactly the extra money that is going to go to private schools under the Gonski proposals. This country is unique in the world in the massive amounts of public subsidy for private education. And Just massive. Go on, Clementine. So isn't there an attitude as well that people who are able and willing to send their children to private schools should be subsidised and supported by the government in some way rather than supporting the people who can't afford to go to private schools. And um, I, I also Isn't think it, that... It's to, it's, to, it's to applaud their ambition <laughs> yes. with, with a subsidy. Well, I don't understand how Australia can still maintain the mythology of the Aussie battler mm. and, on the other hand, at what point the Australian battlers became so invested in defending big business from taxation. You know, the, the reaction to the mining tax from people, to, to be so critical of the government for wanting to do that, when you think... And, and then at the, in the same breath be demanding that more be spent on hospitals and education. I mean, where do they think the best place for that money to come from would be? I don't, I don't understand why... Yeah. We suddenly defend big business now. The, pu the public wasn't. The public wasn't um, uh, critical of the government for mining tax. 
it is near, and I, I think Ipsos has done good research on this, which shows that it is pretty much a consensus view of the Australian community. Well, Fiona wanted to jump in there. What, what did you want yeah, to say, Fiona? I, I would agree that, that I think there are, you know, there's a lot of... We tax the mining tax and frustration that it hasn't gone far enough. Mm. But I think the, the, the anxiety, I mean, there are people also who are, who are going, well, the, the concern is they're going to it's going to destroy an industry which they feel is bringing all, so much money into, into mm. Australia and is providing people with kind of, you know, it's a fast track um, to quick money. If you're desperate... Go down the mines. People talk about it all the time. If you want to earn your uh, mm -hmm. a housing deposit and you're a young person, well, you go to the mines. Um, um, or if you want to fast track into a more senior career, that's where you, that's where you hit. So there's a concern that that, that I mean, that I think the mining industry has done quite well in, in in sort of fostering concern that the whole thing's going to fall apart through the mining tax. Tony Jakes, just a complete change of um, tone and mood now, has a question for us. Tony Jakes, are you around? Hello. Tony. Tony. Come on, don't flake on us now. <laughs> it's only a room full of strangers. G'day. Right, it's Tony Burgoyne, actually. Um, I'm sorry, I've got Jake's here. <laughs> What's your question about? Oh, it's about one-to-one. Um, yes. -one, um, no, it's a different question that I'm thinking. Nevertheless, go ahead. <laughs> right. You're right. right. Okay, given the ease of life for many people in Australia and the consequence complacency... Um, how can the community be motivated to involve themselves positively in issues such as the plight of um, asylum seekers, homelessness and the health and education issues facing Aboriginal communities? Con, would you like to start there? Yeah. Look, I think the first thing I'd say is the community is passionate about it. Like, we always hear about what's wrong. And let me talk about what's right. I've got over 800 people volunteering the time and over a thousand on a waiting list waiting to volunteer. I've got people from little 10-year-olds doing their little fate drives raising food for asylum seekers to people in their 80s knitting winter jackets and coats for people. I have never seen such a groundswell of support. People want to be inspired. People want to make a difference. People want to believe in something. People are sick of being cynical. People are sick of political leadership. People want real leadership. And us as a community can, are, and will provide that. So I think there is great hope and I see it every single day. Let's keep building it, let's keep our eye on the prize, and let's keep going forward. So that's my take on it. At the end of this, Connor's going to announce that he's standing for federal parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you're prepared Never. for that. And he'll Never. be si signing up members. For in the, in the yet party. undesigned political party. Yes, it's right. kind of funny with Diddy's party. United party. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm going to read Tony Jake's question out because it is a total change of speed and it's quite interesting. Many people claim a conscientious objection to vaccinating their children when in essence their refusal is about saving their child from the risks and the trauma of getting a jab at the expense of everyone else's kids. Should we force parents to take their share of the burden by forcing them to vaccinate their children? Can I start with you, Fiona? This is a classic example of the, of the, uh, the individual and the community and the, and the bits that join them all up. Yeah, look, it's a it's a it's a tricky one. Um, is it? Uh, well, <laughs> I think it is because I think I mean I think the the concern amongst uh, parents who are, um, are reluctant to get their children vaccina uh, vaccinated is is not just about concerns about jabs, but fear about um, injury from from vaccination. Um, and you know reports of, of you know growing rates of autism and 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 links that that comes from. Um, vaccinating our, our children is it's a, you know it's a, it is kind of complex because 
That, that, of course, has been fundamentally disproven. That was an, an entire lie and entirely invented by the, put the putative professor and scientist and that, um, that item, that research paper, has been expunged from the record. So if anyone's in any doubt, that is absolutely untrue. But just, just as an aside, no, I, I still think the question stands, I mean, because the, the fear's out there. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that is a very, very important point, but the anxiety, it doesn't take the anxiety away. I don't think people, um, I mean, it's, it's, a small, it's a small minority of, of parents who won't get their children vaccinated. But that does that matter? Does it matter if there's, if there's a, a minority um, within the community and we do vaccination as a community thing, because you vaccinate the herd, you know, individuals get done so that the, you know, the, the, the herd, as it were, <laughs> society, we are a herd. With, with minds of our own, um, uh, get protected. So it's about the, 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 the sacrifice that, or the choice that you make, the tough choice you make as an individual for the good of society. Well, um, of course, the, the fascinating thing that emerged a few weeks ago from research on vaccination rates was that some of the worst vaccination rates in Australia are in some of the most prosperous suburbs. Um, and these are people, I suppose, who feel invulnerable or that they can buy their way out of measles if it comes along. Um, I think people have to be free not to vaccinate their children, but if they decide not to, then they have to be condemned to homeschooling them to university. <laughs> I think this should be... The natural repercussion of a refusal to vaccinate is that they are with you day and night for the next 18 years. And I think that might, prove, that might encourage a rethink. <laughs> Clementine? Um, well, like Fiona, I, I disagree with the part of the question that suggests that parents aren't doing this or, or avoiding vaccinations because they don't want their children to No, no, the question makes clear it's about risks yeah. as, as well as that. So. Um, I know a few people who are anti-vaccination. They're friends of mine. I don't understand them. I've had arguments with them. And I think that research also pointed out that the majority of them were um, university educated as well. Mm. So I think that there's a... F firstly, I think that it's an absolute luxury of people living in the West to decide that they don't want to vaccinate yes. their children. Oh, yeah. mm. And it's, to me, completely bizarre and, and ignorant of the facts of vaccination and, and how many lives have been saved. I mean, when people say, well, the science isn't really in. No, it's in. It's in. It's in in the fact that we're not dying of polio anymore. Um, and there are no kids in calipers at school anymore. Who's old enough to remember kids in calipers? Yeah. I just think that it's... I don't think that you can force people to vaccinate their children. I think that people who don't vaccinate based on this sort of pseudoscience spread by people like Meryl Dory are um, perhaps not as educated about it as they like to think that they are and I think that maybe that is more uh, indicative of this quite sort of off-putting um, left-wing hippie higher educated group of people that uh, reject everything that comes from government papers or from you know everything's about big pharma trying to take well of course vaccinations are created by big pharma to take our money yeah I mean I just, I just think it's a ludicrous question, and okay, well, not, not, not that, uh, not yes, a ludicrous no, 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 question. But <laughs> the idea that there's a debate about vaccinations is completely ludicrous. Can't have you got a view on this one? I think everyone's covered it. Well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so those of you not vaccinating, you've got no comfort here from the panel this morning. Uh, is Jocelyn Williams in the room? Jocelyn Williams submitted a question um, on gambling, communities, and gambling. Jocelyn, are you around? 
This is the spot for it. <laughs> exactly. I think there's some pokies just down the hall. I'll read it out if not. And um, this is a great opportunity for anyone who has questions seriously as part of our discussion about the individual and, and the community, about the selfishness and, and what we see also as a great, a great community connection. Yes, yes, I see you. Um, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to think about a question, put your hand in the air and uh, I'll, I'll spot you and we can get the microphone to you in just a moment. We have Jocelyn here, I think. Hello. No, we don't. Hi, this is just um, oh, got a, a question. Okay, serendipitous great. moment. Yes, um, I'm actually a polio survivor. Yes. And I just wanted to make a comment. Um, the vaccine just came out just, before, just after I contracted it. And so I'm proof of the fact that had I have had the vaccination, I wouldn't have contracted polio. And I have lived a very full and wonderful life but it would have been certainly different had I not mm -hmm. contracted polio so I really you know I am a survivor and I'm very proud to be a survivor but really vaccinate your children because the long-term effects <laughs> are horrible well done all right, this was Jocelyn's question. Community members with out-of-control gambling on poker machines fail to regain control of the community benefit funds because they're invisible to the naked eye and difficult to acquire some return for community organisations. In what way can access to these community benefit funds be improved? Um, communities, you know, through the so-called Community Benefit Fund, at least in, in Victoria, they, they do get access to, to, the, to the gambling levy, if you like, that the Victorian state government imposes. But, but I, think it's, I think the problem is it's dirty money. And I think as a community, we're sick of a lack of regulation around gambling. We're sick that on the one hand, our big sporting brands champion so much positive stuff around violence against women and racism, yet on the other hand, sells off half our community down the path of poverty and homelessness because of gambling. We see a lack of political leadership. We see a lack of leadership from sporting. And I think the idea that we're going to screw, you look at where we are right now, Mabinong, it's something like $30,000 a year is lost to poker machines per head in our area right here. So when you're giving back here, I'll take 30000 and here's five bucks back. Congratulations. That's a load of bullshit. So I think the scheme itself is flawed, and I think we need some real leadership and some real regulation. And while there's some talk of it this week, it doesn't go anywhere near far enough. So I think we need to be looking at why the hell do we need a fund in the first place. Did you say 30000 ahead? Yeah. yeah. In, in this community? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't have anything in front of me that I can double-check those figures, but I'm going to have to rely on you, Con, but that sounds very, very high. Yeah, it, it is around that amount. He's a politician already. Maribyrnong <laughs> has the highest per head loss to poker machines in all of Melbourne. It's, it's Maribyrnong, right here. Where mm. we are right now. No, I, I don't yeah. dispute this area is, is under pressure from, from the, the devil machines themselves. Uh, David Mars, do you have a view? I've... I'm old enough to remember being a journalist um, in the 1970s um, when the big issue in New South Wales was making gambling legal because it was corrupting politics. We already had poker machines, but, but gambling, um, you know, uh, sort of roulette and blackjack and chemin de fer and all of those things... Um, were illegal and there were gambling clubs all through Sydney and as it happens they were paying off the Premier Bob Askin so that they could be there and so I find myself now 
years and years later as a journalist, um, bewildered by the failure to control gambling. You know, I was one of the people arguing, saying we've got to, we've got to legalise gambling, we've got to be able to bring it out of the dark, we've got to control it properly, and now it's a runaway. And, um, you know, Victoria's got poker machines now. Well, you know, it's, you're so much better off for that. Um, and, in, and federally, the Labor government was so scared of the gambling lobby that they put Peter Slipper in the Speaker's chair because they were, because they were, um, because they were betraying um, their promises to Andrew Wilkie. And the whole Slipper madness is a decorative display on top of the toxic cake of a refusal to actually confront the gambling interests in this country. Uh, just one other comment which might interest you is that Tom Waterhouse is becoming a rather unlikely gay icon. <laughs> I had heard this. I have nothing more to add. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So is our sports presenter on News Breakfast, Paul Kennedy. So. <laughs> Fiona? Look, I, I don't know very much about communities, the, the benefit funds, but I, I can say that I've, I've just come out of uh, writing a report on, on late 20s about sort of the, the mind and mood, the sort of big issues for them, and, and there's a whole chapter devoted to, um, to, to gambling and how um, for these young Australians, gambling has become a, a real social event. Um, so it's a big part of their lives? A big part of their What lives. sort of gambling? What are they doing? Um, well, you know, the, the races are yep. very popular. It's the whole, it's the whole event. Mm. And for some people, it's more about the event than the... You yep. know, that they allow themselves to splurge on the outfit and the hair and the, um, the ticket entry and, and also, you know, some, some money for the nags. But, but, it's, but for, for some, it's much more than that. So it's, it's become something they're not just doing in a social group. Um, but it's something that these, these you know, young adults are doing more and more on their own through online betting sites. And they're betting on the footy, they're betting on um, just about everything that they can bet on. And, and so there are young men in particular talking about spending you know, tens of thousands of dollars per year on their gambling problems. And they were, you know, they're going, mm, it's a bit of a problem. Um, it's, it's, it's a major problem. And the age group was, what, 20 to 30? Uh, it, was, it was late 20s in particular. We, we did a, a, a similar study with 21-year-olds um, in November last year and, and um, even in that age group, um, um, you know, the races, the gambling, the going to the casinos, the big kind of the big night out yep. um, and place to kind of lash out um, was, 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 was a big thing for 21-year-olds. So, you know... And I'm seeing a lot of the older generations. I think about my mum's generation where they've worked 40 years of their lives there's no real community infrastructure in place to engage them and provide positive alternatives to life built around work and sacrifice. And that loneliness and disconnection and breakdown of community is driving so much of that generation to poker machines, mm -hmm. where people are just trying to feel a sense of social connection and bonding yep. and that little bit of rush. And it's, for, and it's putting that generation who into a situation where people are losing their homes, ending up on the streets, extraordinary things after working 40, 50 years of their life. And go to any gambling place and you'll see 60, 70-year-olds full in places and going, what's going on that that generation feels so lost and isolated that that's where they're going for connection and community? I have a question here from our cameraman. <laughs> this is just the kind of conference that we're at, folks. <laughs> and the cameraman gets to us again. G'day, everyone. Hello. What's your question, mate? Hello. Um, Hello. Hi. I'm David McLaughlin, a uh, community television producer for Channel 31 Melbourne. 
Um, and I've been at every single conference here, and I think might, some people might remember that I actually asked a question once before. Okay. Um, and it was, it was surprising. So this then. is your shtick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I describe myself as a generally left-wing person. Um, but I am a Catholic and I believe in pro-life. Now, I know this is an unpopular question to ask here. Um, and, uh, yeah, Just I, ask I, it. I, yeah. Just <laughs> ask the question. Yeah. So how do we go about... I, I recognise everyone's deeply held view and I know that the left thinks the pro-life people are against them and the pro-choice people think the pro-life people are, yeah, the, anyway, vice versa. How do we in our society foster some sense of cooperation or, or at least harmony between these two disparate groups when essentially they're both trying to find the best for people they see as sure. disadvantaged. Okay. We got it. Um, does anyone feel inclined to answer that? Clementine? Answer that. Um, firstly, I generally tend to, and I'm, you know, not to impugn your views or anything, I generally tend to not refer to people who are anti-abortion as being pro-life because I consider the real life in question to be the life of the woman and her determination for what she wants from her life. Um, I find the, the perpetual equalising of the two to be really insulting to the woman and the reasons why she may or may not be seeking an abortion and those reasons are nobody's business but hers. But I also think that when you look at the actual facts of family planning, it's, it is reproductive health choices like access to abortion and fertility control that enable women in less privileged communities and cultures than our own to actually have healthier lives, healthier children, to have smaller families increases infant um, survival rates and increases the survival rate of the mother. Um, there are terrible maternal mortality rates in places that don't have access to safe and legal abortion. <coughs> in Pakistan where... <coughs> sorry. In Pakistan, where uh, access to abortion is very, very limited and is only usually given in, in cases where um, the life of the mother, the actual physical life of the mother is under threat, there are 890,000 unsafe abortions sought every year. And many of those women die or are prevented from having children in the future. You know? And currently, I think in, in Ecuador at the moment, there's a young woman who's 24 who is carrying an unviable fetus, but because of the draconian reproductive health laws of the country, she's unable to access an abortion, which means that she will probably die unless the Supreme Court, or the, sorry, the courts of the country enabled her to have that. Clementine, I'm going to get you to wrap up a little bit. Just sorry. I don't want us to get entirely diverted about abortion law when it's actually not an issue that's, in a sense, up for discussion in Australia at the moment, but I want to respect the question and at least get a couple of responses and then move on. So if you can wrap up, Clementine, what's your fundamental point? Well, I don't think that... I'd, I'd, maybe there is no way to bridge the gap between the two. And, you know, we have access to abortion here and that's just the way that it is. David, do you want to say something? Yeah. I am so pleased to live in a country where your side has lost. I am so pleased. You are free, sir, 
to you, your families, and people who believe as you do are free to live by the rules that you wish to live by. But please do not try to impose them on me and my friends and the rest of the community. The politics of the United States of America is constantly debauched by the arguments over abortion. There are some people who argue that, that, the, that the Democrats and the Republicans are the same party, separated only by differences of opinion on abortion. I respect your views. I would ask you to keep them within a religious context. You are free, of course, to advocate them in a secular context. But I am so pleased for this country that you have overwhelmingly lost the political battle on this. Overwhelmingly. And now every single shot of David Maher is going to be out of focus for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> because I'm he sure this man is a professional. the cameraman. <laughs> there goes the day. Bruce Grundy, are you in the room? Oh, I've got a question here. Uh, can I just get a sense of whether Bruce is here? He is. I'll come to you next, sir, so hold that thought. Yes, Bruce, go ahead. Thank you, uh, Virginia. Um, I represent an organisation that works with children, one in 14, I might say, in this country, one in 14, uh, who have a drastic speech-language impairment, um, which means uh, for the people, that the kids that we work with, 2% of the speech-language capacity of their peers, which is, as you would realise, next to nothing. Mm. One in 14. My question then is, uh, I might also add as background, looking at these kids, you would have no idea whatsoever that they had any impairment or disability. They are all beautiful children and they don't uh, come across as having any disability. So with the implementation of the NDIS, the National Disability insurance scheme, my question to the panel, or my boss's question to the panel, what, process, what processes should be put in place to ensure equitable support for all people with disabilities regardless of their age mm. or type of disability? It's a really good question, Bruce, and thank you for asking it. And in a sense, it gets us to a question, if I can just editorialise briefly, uh, that really was never asked or answered during the entire NDIS discussion, which is about the model. Mm. The model of how this is going to be funded, how the money is going to be distributed, to whom, in what circumstances, what are the criteria. And while it's a, um, just a, a wonderful scheme that no one could possibly have a problem with, I have that terrible sinking feeling about billions of dollars and waste and where do they go and who's in charge and who's going to siphon off what a terrible feeling, you know, at the expense of exactly the people you speak of there, Bruce. Who would That's like why to we asked the question. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't know if we have an answer because I don't think discussion of the model has actually been really had and I don't think we have a great number of those details. Do anyone have a strong response? Look, um, I don't know that I have answers, but uh, you know, I'm a parent of a child with a, um, a language uh, delay, um, which is attached to a... Uh, I don't like to call it a disability, but it's a, it's a condition that comes with a name, and, and uh, so it's you know all of this um, is, is certainly kind of of great interest um, to me. And I think the big issue is you know will or won't my child be eligible for for funding and and, and support? Um, and and I, I guess 
coming back to the question, I, I think, is that, that it really needs to be, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, it's not as straightforward as, as, you know, saying, well, this child has condition A or disability B, they are automatically eligible. It has, you have to look at sort of the, the, the quality of life and functional issues, I think, are really, really important. Um, and there are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm participating in a, a program for, for parents um, of children with language delays and mm. it was really interesting to meet um, lots of other parents there um, who uh, have children that have no kind of, they don't need no diagnosed condition. Um, their child has a, has, has a language delay and, 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 and quite often some other delays as well but there's no kind of, there's no, there's no diagnosis, there's nothing wrong, so to speak, um, and, uh, you know, it's a big issue on their minds as well. But, but you know, it's, it's that functional um, level. You know, language is so important to um, participating fully in, 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 uh, um, in life, um, and it's a really important one. I'd, I'd say two things on it. One, if we're going to fund it, we need to stop spending $8 billion over the next three years on detention centres, more than Gonski and Disability Care United <laughs> together. That's what we've just committed to in our budget, and two, for that model to work, we need a holistic, multidisciplinary early intervention model that you can build, scale and replicate across all schools and embed it into the culture. What we don't want is a special track that ghettoizes kids with disabilities. We need to build it into the culture and the infrastructure and ensure each school, public schools in particular, as priority, have that team of specialists at their fingertips and in class sizes that public schools can actually manage so that children with special needs aren't excluded or left behind. David Mark. No answers and the same forebodings as you. Mm. And I can see now the, the tabloid newspaper mm. stories of the mother holding up a baby and okay. saying, I can't get disability yeah. support for or the, this or the, child. Or the, or the money going to the pink bats providers. And, um, you know, it's, and I've got a pink bats feeling. I mean, the most, the most, fundamental, the most fundamental machinery of politics are people lobbying for help of one kind or another. And it's going to be, um, it's going to be sadly ferocious. But that's not a criticism of the scheme. It's about the need to be... Um, compassionate and hard-headed. And rigorous about And rigorous. Yeah. And it's going to be, there are going to be lots of cut-off points and there are going to be lots of arguments about cut-off points and there are going to be lots of sob stories about people who miss out. But unless the government is actually hard-hearted and compassionate simultaneously, the whole thing will collapse. Let's finish this little question on a positive note. There are a few people I know, you know, really good senior um, intelligent public servants I've been speaking to over the last few months privately about this and their misgivings too. And um, some of them might be in a position to actually speak publicly about it. So hopefully on News Breakfast we'll have a series of conversations just on this issue of, the, of, of how it's done, implementation, uh, criteria cutoffs, And that, I think that could be a, a really useful thing. We, we need at least to have that discussion out there, particularly if there's a change of government because maybe there's ways and means then of sort of tweaking what we know so far. Now I want to go back to the gentleman who raised his hand over there. It was you, was it sir? Yes, go ahead. Then I'll come to you here. Can we get a microphone? Just stand up, sir, and then we can see where the microphone needs to come. Good on you. Thanks. Good morning. In, is this on? Uh, yes, in, in light of Con's uh, statistic earlier about the poker machine yep. losses, does the panel think this new website of political fact-checking will be a good, a good thing for Australia? 
Um, I'm married to one of the fact checkers, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd hate to disagree with Virginia. <laughs> and you all better agree. <laughs> oh, yes, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. I've actually got speakers on this. Look, um, thank you for who gave them to me. Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation, 10 ven venues in Maribyrnong, total 56.1 million in losses on poker machines, 15.5 million in losses in Braybrook alone. Second most disadvantaged suburb in Melbourne. That's astonishing. Over what period of time? Yeah, over what period of time? <laughs> I think over the last... A week, a day, the last, year. The last 12 months. Yeah. Extraordinary. 56.1 million just really in To answer your question seriously, I can't, I, I can't see that it's a bad thing having any new, small, big um, media entrants, uh, people who want to enjoy, uh, uh, join the public debate about what might be um, true or, or not, you'll just have to use your judgment about whether you know, this organisation or that organisation is one that's credible enough to you for you to believe. That's what it's going to come down to. It's going to come down to credibility and believability and that's entirely your call. So see how you go. We had a question here, a, a woman. Yes, go ahead. We just get a microphone over to you. We've got five minutes to go, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. If you're burning with questions, now's the time. Now the hands go up. <laughs> Look at you all. Unbelievable. <laughs> go ahead, make it snappy. Um, yeah, quickly, what, and Virginia, could you answer this too? Um, Only if I want. <laughs> <laughs> what do you fear most from a coalition government? I'm certainly anything? not answering that question, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but Clementine is going to? Oh. Oh, everything. Um, I think that, uh, as I was mentioning to David before, um, what I fear is what it will give rise to in the public and that all of these views that perhaps have, are considered unpalatable now because they're deeply racist and misogynist and all those other ists that you can think of will suddenly f be given authority to be shared and that's probably my deepest fear because I think that it's, it's social legislation that's so hard to tackle these days. Most of us in this room have lived long enough to see governments come and go and know that the, that the world doesn't end when, it, when government switches from coalition to Labor and Labor to coalition. And we know the golden rule of politics. When governments change, our fears are never fulfilled and our hopes are never fulfilled. <laughs> and that is the natural cycle of politics in this country and it will roll on in that way into the foreseeable future. Thank you, Obi-Wan. <laughs> she puts me down the whole time. She always puts me down. Total misandry, I reckon. Con? Is there that much of a difference between both parties these days, really? All right. Fiona? Look, I I'm going to hide behind uh, um, you know, social research and what, what sort of we hear other people talking about. I think one of the great fears is that... that, that um, uh, nothing will really change, um, and that the you know the, the magic won't happen when we change government. I think we had a question here. Is that right? Can we get a microphone? Oh, yeah. I'll come up the back in a second. But um, but I also saw a, saw a question here. So yeah, sorry, <laughs> a bit of a sprint. Could take half an hour. No, no, no. <laughs> We're moving with the speed of the wind. Thank you. Um, thank you, Con. I. Sh I um uh, really admire your passion for refugees. I share the same passion for the Aboriginal children in Western Australia that we incarcerate at a um, very high, um, alarmingly 
48 times, rates. 48 times a day. Times yeah. on the wing, question, question, question. Oh, the quick question is, yeah, um, well, we, we actually lock up, uh, there's actually 80% of our juveniles are Aboriginal and we have the highest incarceration rate of children in Australia. Mm. How do we make that, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we put that on the national agenda? I mean, I've been, you know, we can... Okay, I'm gonna, no, just, you are, you've asked your question, okay. seriously, All two right. minutes. So, right. uh, quickly, I know I'm on a board of an Aboriginal children's organisation called Children's Ground. Our approach is one of working with philanthropy, state governments and community to go, we need a whole of generation response, we need to end the intervention, we need to allow Indigenous people to actually have agency and self-determination, we need to invest in culturally appropriate community-based solutions and we need to do it over a generation to have any hope of undoing centuries of dispossession and, and genocide. I'm going up the back, yep. Hello, I'm from Nimbin. Um, our centre has a policy against applying for that gambling money that you were referring to, Con. I'm wondering if it would make any difference if the entire sector decided to abandon applying <laughs> for that money so that we are not beholden to it because it is our feeling in our centre that if we take that money, which is basically coming out of the money of some of our more mm. uh, disadvantaged clients, then we become beholden to that industry and we are no longer in a position to criticise it. So would it make a difference, do you think, if our entire sector said no to that money? <laughs> See where this is going, though. Uh, Con? Uh, look, I agree. My organisation on principle... Really? Let the government keep it? My, my, my organisation on principle refuses to take any federal government funding. To stay independent because of the policies. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Yes, All I right. agree. Expose it. David? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think state governments should cease taking any revenue from gambling at all. And if they weren't living off its tit, they might see how dreadful it is. Yeah. Just an idea. It would be a bit expensive, <laughs> of course. And they, they may not do that. No, and they may not. Some of my good ideas over the last 30 or 40 years <laughs> have not been taken up. <laughs> Clementine, anything to add? I can't add anything. We're more covered. We had a, a question over here. Yes, go ahead. It's a woman in a, in a green top there. Thank you. This will be our last question, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everyone. Think, thinking about community as we are, how do we um, celebrate, support, give voice to the community, community organisations, community views, without tipping over into big society where in my, my sense of it is government steps away and abandons community to itself and says, right. you go and fix everything. Where's the, where's the tipping point? That's a nice question to, to finish on. Um, Fiona, do you want to turn your mind to that? Oh, gosh. Um, look, communities are, are diverse, so I think the, you know, the solutions are very diverse too. Um, I don't know. Con? Look, building a community response to something doesn't mean abandoning government response. In fact, the more we're united and working together across, instead of across purposes, the more effective we're going to be in forcing the hand of government to listen to us. We need to mobilise our social capital to have real influence. Clementine? I agree with Con, and I think that communities need to rediscover their, their power. David? Be vital, be enthusiastic, be inventive, be passionate, but don't let yourselves be used. And on that note, we finish today. Would you please thank our wonderful panel this morning, David Marr, Clementine Ford, Fiona Collis and Con Carapanagiotiris. And our remarkable chair. <laughs> That's me. Nice to see you guys. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did... 
We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.